Thanks for having me tonight. I know some faces out there. Uh, my name is Kermit Summerall, and I am uh, one of the pastors at The Crossing. Thank you very much. <laughs> the slow clap always makes a guy feel great. Um, so I was on staff with Veritas for nine years, the first nine years from 2006 till three years ago-ish. So, um, so I love this ministry. I love to get to come back every once in a while and speak to you guys. And uh, so thank you for having me. I think some of you just got back from Fall Retreat. Uh, my kids still miss Fall Retreat. They complain about me not being on staff with Veritas anymore because they miss going to Fall Retreat. So uh, I have uh, two middle schoolers, an eighth grader, Anna, seventh grader, Hudson. I have a fourth grader, Will, and my wife, Nicole. And uh, so anyway, I'm a pastor at The Crossing Down. I work with small groups. And uh, so I'm enjoying that. And uh, we are in the middle of a series uh, on Philippians. And we're looking at this letter written by the Apostle Paul. And tonight, honestly, I'm excited. I get to speak on one of the greatest passages in all the scriptures. I mean, if, if the scriptures were a mountain range, this would be one of the peaks. This would be one of the highest ones. So we're going to talk about humility. Now, humility isn't a topic that gets a lot of attention. Uh, and yet the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, says that humility is the answer not only to one of, our, one of the deepest problems in the world, but honestly, one of the deepest problems in our lives, it's our me-centeredness. So that's what we're going to talk about, our me-centeredness and humility. So uh, let me just share a story with you to, to tell you what I mean. Um, preface this by saying, there aren't many people out there that would think of me as a guy who has an anger problem, okay? I'm kind of a nice guy. That's what people think about me. Well, um, back in May, I got furiously angry twice. Two different episodes. So I'm going to share them with you real quick. I can't share all the details, but the first one was when my wife was trying to make a funny comment. We were in company of other people trying to make a funny comment, and I just took it really, really personally as this big put down. I was so mad that I left the house without telling her. So she put the kids to bed. I just left the house. I drove to Stevens Park. And I was that guy walking around Stevens Park at like 9.30 at night, like for an hour. So if you ever run into a guy at Stevens Park and you're scared, it could be me. Don't worry. Uh, or a guy like me who's suffering from anger. Anyway, so I was just working out my anger. And I was like texting my wife. And we were going back and forth. And I just could not go home. I was so angry. So instead, what I did was I decided I'm going to a 10.30 movie by myself. I'm not going home. So I went to see Guardians of the Galaxy 2. 10.30 at Forum, and I stopped on the way at break time and got not one, but two things of candy and a big Dr. Pepper to soak away my anger, um, to melt away my sorrows. So, uh, yeah, so Guardians of the Galaxy 2 will probably forever be sort of ruined for me, um, even though it's a pretty good movie. But, man, I took it so personally. My me-centeredness was exposed. Uh, second one involved a coworker who I just made a comment. At the time, I just felt like really disregarded, really treated without respect. I was so mad. Matter of fact, I couldn't, I couldn't, I was supposed to have a day off. I think it was my day off, and I couldn't do anything. I had to go into work to talk to this guy. I was so upset. I had to just get it off my chest and deal with it, all because I felt so disregarded, so unappreciated, so stepped on. And it was just an accident. It was an oversight. <laughs> we talked about it, worked it out. Things are good. But again, my me-centeredness was exposed. 
Now, my wife looks back at that time and notices that I was also on steroids from my low back at that time. So there could have been some roid rage mixed in with the me-centeredness, which makes it even worse. But there was for sure a lot of me-centeredness. But it's not just a personal problem. It's not just a me problem, if you think about me-centeredness. Because despite our increase in education, and despite our emphasis on diversity, tolerance, our society, think about it, is as divided and as full of hate as ever. Our government is partisan, even divided and contentious within the parties themselves. Our cities, even Mizzou, has dealt with all kinds of racism, violence, hate crimes. There's unjust police brutality followed up by responses that are also sometimes unjust in response. There's the threat of war with Korea. There's escalating verbal tension between leaders. And then you look at social media, and there are just constant either put-downs or shock reactions to things, right? I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you didn't notice this. And I've, I've, I've done it too. And each side demonizing each other. So there's a serious problem with our world, and it's not going away. So our text for tonight is not only one of the greatest texts in the Bible, it gives us a really great description, not only of Jesus' person and purpose, but really gets at the root of of what is at the root of all this divisiveness, all this tension, all this hatred in our world. And we're not going to make progress until we realize that the problem is right in here with us, with you and me. So let's pray for just a moment and ask God to teach us. Father, we pray that you would please teach us, that you would please open our eyes to see great things uh, in your word, in the scriptures. Please use it to open our eyes to the glory and beauty of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read Philippians 2. We're going to cover verses 1 through 11, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, but we're going to kind of do it chunks at a time, okay? So we're going to start looking at verses 1 and 2. So follow along with me. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So, get this, the Apostle Paul is saying to the Philippians and to us that he wants us to be like-minded. He wants us to have the same love for one another, to be one in spirit, agreement, cooperation. So on the one hand, this sounds almost like too good to be true, like pie in the sky. This is like utopian. What is this? What are you talking about, Paul? And then on the other hand, it's exactly what we desperately need, not just as a world, but as a person. It's what our world needs. And so, and, and he says here that there's something about Jesus that makes this possible. So what's the problem? What's at the root of it? Here it is, Philippians 2.3, Paul says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition. So inspired by God, Paul says that what's causing the chaos, the turmoil in the world, in our lives, in the church, is this, selfish ambition. And what is that? Think about that with me for a minute. Ambition, what's that? Well, it's the desire, right, and the effort to do something. What's selfish? Well, it's making things about me, right? So what's selfish ambition? It's basically when I make everything in life about me. Everything I'm trying to do about me. I can't do anything without (laughs) making it about me. Me Me-centeredness. 
So in, in uh, 2006, there's this book, sociological book, uh, called Generation Me that came out. I think actually in, in that year or the year after, that was like the book that every freshman at Mizzou had to read coming into Mizzou. And so uh, you'll see it up here. And so the author made basically a case from sociological data uh, that there's been this increase in self-importance, uh, narcissism, entitlement, that sort of thing. Uh, more individualism, more focus on self, and especially pointing the finger at your generation is what they were saying. And then, um, now I don't know if that's true, okay, but follow this with me. This is interesting. In 2013, Time Magazine followed that up with an issue called the Me, Me, Me Generation. Millennials are lazy, entitled narcissists who still live with their parents and why they'll all save us. So, or why they'll save us all. Um, Then, The Atlantic came out with this article uh, called Why Every Generation is the Me, Me, Me Generation. So, so get this, and they trace kind of through all these different articles just the me-centeredness of our world, of our lives. So in September 1907, the Atlantic runs this article, Why American Marriages Fail. And so it says the reason marriages are failing, 1907, is because, quote, the latter-day cult of individualism, the worship of the brazen calf of self, so they thought that generation was particularly me-centered, right? So then, look at 1976, New York Magazine, the me decade. So people are kind of deciding at that point in the 70s, hey, I can just hit the reset button on my life, kind of reinvent myself, do what makes me happy. I'm going to make my life about me. And so they're starting over with what makes them happy, and so they're seeing that trend, and they call it the me decade. Then 1990, 20-something. So Gen X, that's my generation. Gen X is a bunch of screw-ups. What does it say? Laid back, late blooming, or just lost? <laughs> uh, craving experience and entertainment, fickle and impractical. That's how it describes my generation. So what's my point? My point is that every generation expresses its me-centeredness in a different way, maybe. You know, adapts to culture, trends differently, all that. That's true. But here's the thing, is every generation is a me, me, me generation. Because me-centeredness runs right through the center of every one of our hearts. So can you see that in your life? This tendency to kind of make everything about me. I mean, it's hard to kind of do anything, go anywhere, say anything, post anything, without thinking, will I be noticed? Will I get respect? Will I get likes? Will it look good on my resume? Will it advance my career? Why was I ignored? Why was I slighted? You know, how dare you make me look bad? How dare you put me down? It's hard to do anything without thinking about that, isn't it? Well, one thing that's interesting about the passage we read in Philippians is that another way to translate that word selfish ambition would be rivalry. Some versions of the Bible call it rivalry. And, and think about it. That does kind of make sense, doesn't it? See, whenever I make things about me and me looking good, well, when you're not giving me the regard, the attention, the likes I want, what does that make you? My rival, right? My enemy, because you're not giving me what I want. Or, Or when things are going well for you, when you're succeeding, well, you're a rival because your success threatens me, my insecurity. So I think... What the Bible is putting its finger on here is that this is what fuels not only wars and partisanship and violence and hate, but also jealousy and slander and insecurity and all these things we struggle with. 
It's this relentless need of the self to be vindicated. I mean, what is it that makes us unable to work through our problems without hurt feelings, hurt egos, bitterness, anger, on and on? It's it's self and the regard that self must have. It can't rest, right, until it has that regard. It will not be slighted. So the opposite of all of this that we're talking about, the opposite of me-centeredness, is this beautiful thing that the Bible describes and calls humility. So C.S. Lewis defined humility this way. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. Did you get that? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. In other words, it's the freedom that comes from me-centeredness. It's getting away from me-centeredness. So we're going to talk about humility. And uh, our outline for tonight is we're going to look at first how we lost humility. Second, how we gained humility. And third, how we express humility. Okay, so first, how we lost humility. Name that song. <laughs> what was it? I didn't hear it. Never mind. Um, so, wouldn't you hate that if someone pointed that out if you're ringing them off anyway? Um, so, Paul tells us that, uh, why we tend to make everything about ourselves, how we lost humility. Um, and we all have this problem. So, um, Pastor Tim Keller, he helped me out with this, thinking, thinking through this in a sermon he did. And so it's this next little phrase in Philippians 2, 3. Because it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or what? Conceit. Okay, well, conceit, what's that? When, we, when I hear conceit, I think of pride, right? Or arrogance kind of thing. But there's more to it. This is one of those things where sometimes pastors sort of show off on, with the Greek language, like original text of the Bible, kind of a show off thing. But this one, it actually helps out a lot. Um, and I didn't, it was, it was Keller that pointed this out, not, not me. I'm not this good at Greek. But, but here's the thing, is when you look at the Greek language, that word is this word, kenodoxion. So what that means, it's, it's a compound word, comes, it's from two different words, keno, meaning empty, and doxion, meaning glory. So kenodoxion, empty of glory. So think about that for a second. I think that's incredibly insightful. The scripture is making a really profound diagnosis of our hearts. It's revealing that the reason we incessantly make everything about ourselves is because we're empty of glory. Now that word glory doesn't mean a whole lot to us, right? But it's in the Bible a lot. And and what that means is it's glory is that which makes a person matter, that which gives them a sense of importance, a weight, significance. And so we can talk, we talk of God's, when we kind of combine God's attributes, God's excellencies all together, we can say the glory of God. That's what we're talking about. And so, and so what Paul is saying is the reason we're so me-centered is because we've lost our glory. We've lost our sense of self. And so we're desperately trying to get that sense of self back by what we do, by how we relate. I think we can all relate to that, right? We have this sense of emptiness about us that just wants to be filled. How do we do it? So Paul says the answer is humility. Look at Philippians 2, 3 through 5. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, so he said, let, let's think about what humility. What is he saying here? He's saying humility, it's, it's thinking about counting others. Not that they are better than you, but you're counting them, treating them as better than yourself. And, and you're not just thinking about your own interests, but you're also thinking about others, right? Not making everything about ourselves. But, and then he sums it up by saying, be, have the mind of Jesus. How do we do that? I can't do that. I'm so consumed with myself. How do we do that? Here's the second point. So how we gain humility. Well, Paul says the way we gain humility is by getting the glory that only comes from Jesus. Okay? Jesus has a glory about him that fills the emptiness in our lives. And Philippians says it so beautifully. So just follow along with this a few verses here in a row. Verses 6 through 11. It says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So that's a lot. Okay, so let's slow down for a second. Take that in for just a minute. So here we have one of the greatest descriptions in the Bible. Of who was Jesus and what was he about. Okay, let's think about it. He's saying here, we have the pre-existence of Jesus, okay? So in other words, God the Son existing for all eternity. The very one who created us in this whole universe. He became a man. That's called the incarnation, okay? And then we see his humiliation. So he not only comes from heaven to earth as a man, now he's going even down further. We see his humiliation. He suffered to the point of death on a cross, And then we see his exaltation is what it's called. So because of Jesus' perfect obedience and fulfilling the plan of God, God exalts him to the highest place. And that's where it ends. But here's a really cool thing I want you to catch. Okay, if you look back at verses 6 through through, uh, 8, specifically, I think it's in verse 6, this little phrase, emptied himself. Okay, what's interesting about that is it's that same word, keno, empty in Greek, okay? So here's the thing. So God, the eternally preexistent Son who existed in perfect joy, perfect happiness, perfect love, perfect glory, He didn't keep that glory for Himself. No, He didn't make His own glory about Him. Instead, He made it about God, fulfilling the plan of God. He made it about us, So he emptied himself of glory to give us glory. So let's let's make this clear. He didn't give up being God because Jesus is fully God and fully man. But he gave up the full glory of being God by becoming fully human, by being a servant. He took on the weakness, right, of flesh and blood. Think about this. He was the king of kings, but he emptied himself and allowed himself to be called and treated like a servant. 
He was worthy to be made much of, and yet he made much of God the Father and much of us. He was deity. He was limitless. He was infinite, but he emptied himself, taking on the limitations and the finitude and the frailty of a human body like, like yours and like mine. He withstood all the temptations of this world, the discouragement, the suffering. And then he did the unimaginable, the unbelievable. He allowed his own creation to kill him. He died on the cross. So, so think about it. Think about this for a minute. He became nothing so that you could become someone. He was made a no one so that you could become God's someone. He was made dirty by sin so that you could be made clean. He was hated so that you could be liked by God. He was made to look wretched so that you look radiant. He became empty so that you get glory. So when we're glory empty, see, humility is not possible. See, we have to make it about us. We're desperate for glory. But see, it's when we see what Jesus did for us, when we receive it, that's when we find glory. That's where our heart gets filled. That's where we find rest for our souls. And so our glory-empty hearts become glory-filled in him. We can have glory because he emptied himself of glory. Here's one way to think about it. What's the value of something? The value of something is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it, right? Well, Jesus emptied his pockets of glory for you. You know, that he would do that for you and me, that he would do that for me, that he loved me, that he loved you so much that he gladly did that for us. That is beyond amazing. I can't even get my mind around it. That's my glory. That's your true glory, that he did that for you. And when we see that and when we savor that, that's what makes us full. And that's what makes us able to be humble. And so we read on in verse 9 through 11, you see that Paul's heart is so full, he breaks out in praise. That's when he talks about the Christ's exalted part. Because he's so focused on Christ and what he did that he just praises. He breaks out in worship and his heart is full. So have you ever been somewhere just incredibly gorgeous? Think about maybe the best scenic place you've ever been. Maybe it was a mountain. Maybe it was a beach. Some kind of view that was just the best thing you've ever seen. Try to get that in your mind for just a second. You ever notice something? When you were looking at that, you weren't thinking about yourself, were you? And that's one thing that's so awesome about it, is we're finally free to not think about ourselves. We can enjoy something else, right? That's, we're free. And, and so, um, in the summer of 1997 was the first time I ever went to Japan. And uh, my wife and I were missionaries there for a few years. But not, summer of 97, I was in college, went on a mission trip to Japan. And one of the cool things we got to do was we got to hike Mount Fuji. And so some of you guys did that this summer who went on Project Japan. And so, so what you do is you kind of drive up to where the tree line ends, 
and then you, you hike up this sort of like lava rock trail, sort of back and forth, stopping at these little rest stations. Anyway, we, I, I think it took about six hours, like the group that I was with, to hike up to the top. And we got up there because we did it in the middle of the night because we wanted to see the sunrise. So we got up to the top, and it's still dark. It's cold. We're sweaty from hiking, and now we're just standing there in the cold and in the wind on top of Mount Fuji, you know, and just kind of miserable. You'd think we were miserable, but we weren't. We weren't miserable at all. Why? Because we get to see the sunrise from the top of Mount Fuji. Like, that's awesome. I wasn't thinking about my sweatiness or my coldness or whatever. It was just beautiful, right? Something you, once in a lifetime kind of thing. That's what it's like. So the more we gaze at, the more we're awed by, the more we worship Christ, the more we're freed from me-centeredness. So just ask you, you know, is that a glory that you found in your life? Have you found that? Have you experienced that glory that sets you free from me-centeredness? Because this is it. It's seeing Jesus. It's receiving what he did for you as your glory. And how do we receive that? We receive that by trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, for our forgiveness, to be our glory, and from turning away from the other glories that we've been trying to chase and they never measure up. Okay, that's how we receive that glory. And but here's the thing, is it's not just a one-time decision because it's something we have to keep going back to over and over again because, because of sin's effects in our hearts, it's made our hearts kind of like a leaky bucket, okay? And so we have to keep reminding ourselves, keep rehearsing, keep going back and reorienting ourselves over and over again to the glory of Christ. We have to go back to it again, okay? So how do we do that? Well, that's why worshiping at a Bible-believing, gospel-believing church is so important. That's why coming to something like Veritas is so important, a place that helps you sing, a place that helps you hear of this glory, right? That's why we do small groups and Bible studies. That's why those are so important because we need to learn about that glory. We need to understand it so that our hearts can be more enamored with it. That's why we need to spend time alone with God in the Bible and prayer in a way that isn't just about knowledge but is a, is a relationship with God. We're learning but we're also communing with God because what is that? That's like a fresh installment of glory. That's like another bucket of glory that we're bringing into our hearts, reminding ourselves of that glory. So I'll just say this, if that's something you aren't experiencing, if you haven't experienced that glory, I would just say this, please talk to a staff member, please talk to a pastor or maybe a friend, trusted friend about that, okay, because they'd want to help you understand how it is that you can put your trust in Christ and receive that glory. But also there may be other reasons why you're not experiencing that glory. Like I'll be honest, you know, the times in my life where I've been holding on to sin and hiding sin and not being honest with God about it. I'm not experiencing his glory because I've shut myself off from it with my sin, okay? Or, or maybe there's other things. Um, maybe it's shame and guilt. Like maybe you have such a profound sense of shame and guilt, I don't know, for whatever reason, that it's so hard for you to experience God's glory in your life. And that's something that you need to talk about with someone. Or maybe it's just when you open your Bible, you don't know how to read your Bible in a way that really makes it come alive to you, that makes you able to feed on it and makes you able to have a relationship with God. Okay, and feel close to God and experience his glory through it. That's something that you can learn. And so a staff member or a small group leader would want to help you do that. So I'd say pursue any of those things that you fit into, okay? Um, 
Last big point. Third, how we express humility. Okay, so we've talked about how we lost humility. We've talked about how we gained humility. Now we're talking about how we express humility. So I'm going to give you kind of four descriptions of what humility looks like, okay? Number one, humility is thoughtful. It's thoughtful. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what does humility do? Humility counts others more important. It, humility has mental space to think of others and not just ourselves. Humility serves others' interests, not just mine. So how about with your roommates? What does it mean with your roommates? Well, it means being considerate of them. It means being glad to serve them. Not only doing your part around the house, but being willing to kind of go above and beyond, you know, and be the one to clean the sink for the second, third, whatever time that week, right? That's hard to do, really hard to do. How about uh, on social media? Humility being thoughtful means not being so emotionally bound up with it, right? Not riding the roller coaster of likes or lack of likes or whatever it is, you know, on Instagram. Um, Not posting... Are posting to relate, not posting to get something. Being slow to anger and slow to post sometimes when we're angry. Giving the benefit of the doubt to someone else and the way they responded to your post, okay? How about in your relationships? In your relationships, humility being thoughtful looks like building others up, encouraging others, being quick to point out others' contributions, others' strengths, right? Okay, next, humility is thankful. Humility is not only thoughtful, it's thankful. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Man, that's so convicting, isn't it? Humility realizes that everything we have is a gift from God. and It's thankful for it. Humility resists discontentment, complaining, envy. So how about with the life God has given you? How do you think about the life God has given you? How do you think about the body God has given you? Your opportunities that you've had or haven't had. Are you thankful? Are you fighting against Instagram envy with those things? How about with your talents, with your giftedness, with your intellectual ability? You know, are you thankful? Are you faithful with the opportunities God has given you? Where God has you now, being faithful there? Or are we pining for bigger and better always and discontent with the opportunities God has given you? How about in your relationship with your parents? What does it look like there? I think humility looks like being thankful for what they provide for you. Thankful for what they've done for you. Maybe they can't give you as much as you would like, but thankful for what they do give you. Humility is thankful. Thirdly, humility is teachable. Teachable. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Why? Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account to God. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So humility knows it has a lot to learn. Humility knows it has blind spots. Humility knows it needs a lot of help in life. It's teachable. It's not defensive. 
So how about with your professors? What does that look like? It looks like listening. It looks like showing them respect. It looks like the way talking respectfully about them when we're away from them, when we're with our friends. Or how about with the Veritas staff? I mean, I think a big part of this is just, are we open to learning from them? Are we welcoming correction in our life? Or do we, are we defensive? Now, one of the things about being in a college ministry, and I remember this from doing, from doing Veritas for so many years, one of the things that can be challenging is that we all want a mentor, right? We all, when, you're, when we're in college, we want someone that we can look up to, someone we can learn from, someone who's a few, you know, laps ahead of us in life. But here's the thing is there's only so many staff around, right? And so humility looks like being thankful for maybe that small group leader who's maybe only a year or two ahead of you, but being thankful that God's given you them, be, realizing, hey, I can learn from them, and I can grow in this small group God has provided for me. So and with your small group leaders, for that instance, what, what does it mean? It means encouraging them. It means showing up. It means being quick to offer them help. So humility is teachable. And the last thing I would point out is that humility is trusting. Humility is trusting. First Peter 5, 6-7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. So what does humility look like? Humility doesn't worry and wring its hands in anxiety. It trusts God's care for your life. Humility trusts that God knows what's best. That God is only putting in your life what is best. There's probably a lot of things in your life right now that are a struggle to believe that about. But that's what humility strives to believe. Get this. Hebrews 12 says this about trials that we go through. It says, endure hardship or endure trials as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. So when God brings trials, hard things in your life, and I know there's many, many of you facing different things right now, whether it's with your family, whether it's some kind of a sickness, some kind of a learning disability, something in your past, whatever that is that you're dealing with, humility responds not by bitterness, not by complaining, but by turning to God, by trusting, clinging to his goodness in your life. So as the worship team comes back up, these are just a few ways that humility looks, okay? A few of the ways that humility expresses itself. Here's the thing. Can you see how good, how beautiful that life of humility would be? I mean, think, what if we really lived that way? What if those around us really lived that way? What if Veritas was known for being that way? What an amazing beautiful thing that would be. What an impact that would make at Mizzou. If our churches were like that, what an impact that would make in Columbia if they saw the goodness in our humility. It's what the world needs. It's what you and I need. But it only comes from believing that glory that comes from Jesus. It only comes from not only believing it, but continuing to behold it, to gaze at it, to look at it, to worship Jesus and his glory.
So we're going to sing um, All Hail the King, or Hail the King, in just a minute. But before we do, what I'd like us to do together as a way just to try to get this glory into our hearts is I'd like for you to stand with me. So if you would stand up, we're going to say out loud together Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Now here's the part I forgot to tell you earlier. This is really cool. Get this. So these verses, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, is one of the most ancient worship songs of the church. It's probably the earliest one we know about in the New Testament. So in other words, the earliest Christians, okay, when they gathered together, they would sing this song. Why were they singing this song? Because they knew they needed their hearts filled with the glory of Christ. Okay, so as we read this together, Father, I pray that you would fill us with that glory as we read it right now. Cause us to praise you. Read it with me, if you will. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's sing together of his glory. (laughs) 